Welcome back. If you can find your seat, uh, we're going to take a few minutes this morning. And uh, typically we would do a Palm Sunday appropriate message. Uh, I don't think that today's message is inappropriate. It's just not found in one of the Gospels. We are concluding our sermon series in the book of Galatians today. And so if you have a Bible, let me uh, invite you to turn to Galatians chapter 6. And we're going to cover the last uh, few verses in the book of Galatians, in the letter of Galatians. Uh, I think you'll find it uh, in many ways appropriate for Palm Sunday or even for Easter Sunday uh, as we talk about Paul boasting in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. I'll pray, and then we'll stand and we'll read uh, the passage together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather as the body of Christ, um, as the bride of Christ, the one that you are preparing uh, for the wedding feast and for the marriage of the Lamb. We thank you that you have called us to become like you, in this process of sanctification where we are growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and we are becoming more and more like You as Your Holy Spirit transforms us. This is part of that process of hearing Your Word publicly, of hearing Your Word in the congregation, and responding to Your Word as a community of Christ followers. We pray for those who are not yet believers, uh, who are here, who are exploring your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would uh, convict them and would speak to them and would remind them of your great love for them uh, as demonstrated in the cross. We thank you for those who have been believers for, for a long time. We pray that their hearts would be renewed and encouraged as they continue to walk with you through trials and difficulties uh, through the various situations that we all face, we pray that we might remain faithful and that we might walk with you and that our love for you would increase as we come to know you more and more intimately. Thank you for this time. We pray that you would use your word to strengthen us and to challenge us and to change us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me invite you to stand. We're going to read Galatians 6 and we're going to read verses 11 through 18. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh." But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits, brothers. Amen. You may be seated. Paul is wrapping up this letter. He has circled the runway and is landing the plane. And this is the end of the letter. And he has finished his final instructions. And now he gives a brief summary of the message of grace 
uh, and salvation by grace through faith alone here in these final verses. And he gives a couple of other uh, interesting points. But, but you know uh, just by reading through that, that the verse that you'll want to memorize or the verse that you probably have on a 3 by 5 card somewhere or the verse that is most popular from this passage is verse 14. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I was thinking of this as we were singing, and I just briefly had my history of singing kind of flash before my eyes. It's not a very long career at all. Uh, Just so you know, I'm not much of a singer. I don't like to sing. Um, In the days before I became a Christ follower at age 17 or so, um, I, I didn't like to sing, and when we would go to church on Christmas and Easter in this Catholic church, uh, there were times when we would sing, and, uh, and I just would kind of lip sync the words or would mutter through it and just wouldn't really, I didn't enjoy singing. Uh, even when I started to go um, with a, a girlfriend before I became a believer to church or when we would go to Young Life or to FCA, I didn't ever really like the singing part, uh, partially because I, I'm not a singer, I'm not a good singer. I don't like to sing. I don't like to sing publicly. I stopped singing publicly when I had to uh, in vocal music in middle school at some point. Uh, But then after I became a believer and after I began to grow and after I began to understand um, that I wasn't singing for myself or I wasn't singing for people around, that I had uh, really a singular audience in what I was singing about, I began to sing differently. And I began to sing um, with conviction, um, uh, with um, emotion. I began to sing um, with um, some some, um, sort of uh, conviction Uh, as I was thinking about who I'm singing to and why I'm singing to him. And so when we sing about the cross, it just seems like a weird thing to do. We don't sing to any other sort of torture death device ever. Uh, We don't don't exalt or corporately glory in something strange like the cross. So why the cross? Why do we sing about a cross? Why do we um, eat and drink bread and juice to remind us of body and blood. Christianity can seem very strange to someone who's not yet a Christ follower. 1 Corinthians 1, uh, verse 18, Paul says, for the, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us it's the message of salvation. We love the cross. We sing about the cross. We glory in the cross. If you were to do a hymn search, um, H-Y-M-N, hymns, that we used to sing in the book, you know, um, I searched for hymns based on Galatians 6.14 and found over 200 that had references to this verse alone. We sing about the cross, and that's one way that we um, glory in the cross or boast in the cross. When I survey the wondrous cross, on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to His blood. This love song to and about the cross 
It's unusual, but Paul says that we're supposed to boast in the cross. We're supposed to glory in the cross. Throughout Scripture, we see people boasting in different things. In Psalm 5, 5, the psalmist writes that the boastful shall not stand before God's presence because he hates all evildoers. So there is a way in which we can boast in something not of the cross. The psalmist continues in Psalm 34, 2, that my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble be glad and let them hear. Psalm 44, verses 6 through 8, For I do not trust in my bow, nor can my sword save me, but you have saved us from all our enemies and have put to shame those who hate us. And so in God we have boasted continually, and we give thanks to your name forever. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let the one who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And on and on and on, Scripture goes on to describe those who make their claim and their glory in Christ alone. Ephesians 2, 8-9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And this is a summary of the message of Galatians. That if salvation is accomplished by human achievement, then you should boast about that. If you can accomplish your own salvation by your own morality, or by your own religious deeds, or by your own works, then you deserve credit. The Scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, in Romans 3.23. And because we have all fallen short, we could not accomplish salvation through our own works. Salvation is by grace, through faith alone. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And that's why Paul can say, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's ask and answer this question this morning. Why should we glory in the cross? Why should we glory in the cross? Let's get back into the text and answer that question. Verse 11, he concludes the letter saying, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It's a very curious phrase. Paul didn't always write his own letters. In Romans 16, uh, a man named Tertius, Romans 16, 22, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Tertius is, uh, is what's called an amanuensis. It was a secretary, a professional scribe uh, that Paul would dictate most of his letters to, and in the dictation, uh, this person was um, a professional at, uh, at, at um, using the, uh, the cursive script that they would have used for economy of ink and for economy of paper, uh, and, and it would have been read probably by a scribe or someone that the letter would have been delivered to. There was a whole profession based around this, and Paul often used that. Um, in 2 Thessalonians 3.17, Paul says, I write this greeting with my own hand, and this is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. 
Can you imagine seeing Paul's handwriting, his own lettering as he signed off on many of his letters? He would often write the ending of a letter or write in his own hand the letters. But this phrase, verse 11, indicates that he might have written this entire letter by himself or he might have written it with large letters um, indicating possibly an eye ailment. If you remember earlier in the book of Galatians and maybe in chapter 2, he said uh, that if you would have, you know it was because of a bodily affliction that I first came to you and preached the gospel to you and, and I know that if you could have, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Which gives us a hint at what uh, he might mean here by large letters. Um, some of you might have a large letter Bible. You don't have to raise your hand, but, um, but for those of us, I got my first set of bifocals, so I hit that age uh, this year where I have three lenses, and if, I, if you see me looking up and down, it's because it's close and mid-range and far range, and so I, I'm, when I'm getting used to it, I'm tilting my head up and down. Is that what Paul means? I'm writing to you in large letters? I don't know. I'm not sure what this means. I don't know if it, if it indicates his mood. So he's so furious that he's writing this, his letter himself or if it's just an indication of his letters. It might not mean this, but it could mean this, that it's such an important message that Paul penned it himself and sent it off by himself. You remember the tone right away in uh, Galatians 1.6. He said, I'm, I'm astonished that you're so quickly abandoning the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and rejecting Jesus and turning to another gospel, which is not a gospel at all. So it could be that he just didn't even wait for an amanuensis, and he just started writing the letter himself. I remember, I'm old enough to remember, the, uh, the, sending an email for the very first time. And I didn't have an email account. I got an email account. I don't know if it was, um, I don't know what it was through, but I found it, and I, I, and I got the email. And I sent an email to my boss, and I don't know why I did this, but I just did it in all caps. Are you going to lunch with so-and-so? They want to know if they made this appointment or not. And she replied kindly back, when you write in all caps, it's like screaming, right? It's like um, shouting, so don't use all caps. I don't know why I did that, but I said, okay, I'll tone it down and write uh, in undercase um, letters. Paul seems to be writing this with large letters, and I don't know if it's his version of all caps, um, but either way, the letter bears that sort of significance, and it's interesting that he writes with his own hand here. Then he gets into the opponents of Christianity as in his summary in this section. So look at verses 12 through 13. And 12 and 13 is aimed at the opponents. You will remember as we've gone through this letter that Paul writes this on an occasion. And the occasion is that he had preached the gospel to many cities around the region of Galatia. And after he left, a group of people called the Judaizers, uh, they were um, Jewish people who uh, talked about Jesus and they, they said that Jesus was good and Jesus was fine, but they preached a different gospel and they said that if you want to really be saved, Jesus is okay, but you have to add to Jesus the law of Moses. You have to follow the law and you have to be circumcised and you have to follow the dietary laws and the sacrificial laws. And so that's what's got Paul so angry is these Judaizers have polluted all of these churches that he started. 
And now they're, they're being influenced by these Judaizers who are saying you have to not only believe in Jesus, but you now also have to follow the law. So Paul is summarizing his argument against those opponents. In verse 12, it is those, the Judaizers, who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Paul's criticism against the Judaizers is that they were attempting self-exaltation. They wanted the glory They wanted the attention. They wanted people to look at them. And Paul gives three features of self-exaltation in this passage. He's showing us how to recognize those who live for their own glory. And this isn't just a message that is for um, ancient Galatia, right? Do you see people in Christianity today who preach the gospel for self-exaltation? Sure you do. Absolutely, there are, there's an entire social media uh, pages and accounts dedicated to pastors who wear clothes that cost thousands of dollars and who drive expensive cars and live in expensive houses and have personal jets and, and, and they hold up for all the world to see that there are those within Christianity who live the self-exalted life, who don't boast in the cross. And there are three ways that we can identify whether it's us, some of us in the room, or those within Christianity who live this self-exalted life. How to recognize those who live for their own glory. Verse 12a, he says, they make a good showing in the flesh. This might indicate that it's all performance for a momentary amount of recognition. It's all performance, and it's all done in the power of their own flesh. So there is no, Paul says, uh, when I came to you in Corinth, I didn't use um, rhetoric, or I didn't use um, flowery language. I made it my ambition to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and He just preached the message of the cross in the power of the Holy Spirit, and God moved. And he moved in such a way that no one could say, oh, it's because Paul was such a great orator, or it's because he used so many incredible illustrations, or because he dressed in such a way, or used these kind of, this kind of language in such a way that brought him attention. Those who want to make a good showing in the flesh are, are performance-driven for personal recognition. They are those who pray publicly, but never privately. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that they love to stand on the street corners and be acknowledged by the way that they pray, by the way that they give, by the way that they look when they fast. They'll distort their uh, bodies and their face so that people can tell they must be fasting. All for recognition. Do you want to see someone who's living for their own glory? Observe them privately and then publicly. And there's usually a growing disparity between who they are personally, privately, and who they are publicly. 
The second way he tells about their self-exalted lifestyle, 12b, they do this to avoid persecution. They do this to avoid persecution, meaning they compromise the gospel because there are those who were proclaiming salvation by grace through faith alone, and it was such such a, a controversial message that people would persecute and beat and stone and imprison and carry off. All you have to do is read Acts, all about Paul and Peter in prison. And and anyone who preached the gospel of Jesus Christ received persecution. The way to avoid persecution was to compromise the gospel. That's what the Judaizers did. They didn't preach the gospel. They preached the gospel plus works, and that way everybody was happy. A little bit of Jesus, a little bit of works. Now we don't get persecuted. Now we avoid the whip. Now we avoid the jail. They do all this to avoid persecution. Now listen, some things are worth avoiding, right? There are very few of you who are saying, I I hope that I get persecuted today. I hope that somebody mocks me for my faith. I hope that somebody ridicules me for believing in Jesus. I hope that somebody uh, takes away my business or takes money away or uh, messes with my advertising or stops shopping at my business or whatever it is that you might do. I hope that there is some negative repercussions because of the gospel witness that I have in the community. No one wants persecution, but there is a kind of persecution worth enduring. If you're experiencing persecution because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you are standing on that which is worth enduring, the gospel. In Matthew 5, 11 through 12, Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Persecution is good if it's for the right reason. You don't want to be persecuted for being a jerk or for being rude or for anything else. Being a lawbreaker, Paul says at one point in Romans, I believe. Um, But to experience persecution for the gospel and for your stand, that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through Him. To stand on that message and to receive the repercussions is worth enduring. But these Judaizers, they soften the gospel and they compromise the message so that they might not be persecuted. Now listen, let me just be frank with you. Entire denominations are doing this right now. Compromising the gospel so that our culture will not persecute them. We live in a very hostile environment these days. Uh, Our church and others uh, were founded with the idea that, that truth we hold with a closed fist. We don't compromise the gospel. We don't compromise doctrine. We don't compromise truth. What we hold with an open hand is the subculture of our congregation. We don't wanna, you don't want to sit in pews. You want to sit in chairs. So what? You wanna, different, uh, do you want to sing from a hymn book? Do you want to sing from a TV? Big deal. The, the cultural things of Christianity come and go. They change. They're temporal. We hold those things with an open hand. But the truth, the things that matter, we hold with a very closed fist, very tight-fisted when it comes to the gospel and the message of truth. 
Some denominations have gotten that backwards. They're willing to compromise truth while maintaining their own subculture. And they'll do so at their, uh, to their own demise. Entire denominations are folding uh, and decreasing in importance and in influence because of their compromise with the truth. That indicates those who are living this self-preserved, self-exalting life. The third indicator is verse 13. They live a hypocritical life. Paul says they don't even follow the, the message that they preach to you. Follow them around and find out if they're following the law of Moses. Paul says they're not. I can promise you they're not. Because I tried to follow the law of Moses in his previous life, Paul said, as a Pharisee of Pharisees. He uh, was um, of the tribe of Benjamin in in Romans. He brags about who he was in Christ, uh, and he boasts in 1 Corinthians as well. Um, With this boasting, he said, but I, I consider it all a loss for the sake of gaining Christ. The Judaizers fit the description of those that Jesus condemns in Matthew 23. In Matthew 23, Jesus um, says seven woes against those Pharisees and scribes and teachers of the law who only want to make a good showing in the flesh, but they are like whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. But then he gets to verse 14, and this is the key verse of this passage. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Let's spend a couple of minutes on this. We can see um, the world and its pull for people to brag or to be prideful about a great number of things. Intellect, athletic ability, financial uh, status, accomplishments, degrees, skills that someone might have, influence or power, political or otherwise. People brag and are prideful about many of these things. A few years ago, I heard a song, I think it's by Aloe Black, and I I really liked it. And then I heard the lyrics to it, and it was, uh, you can tell everybody that I'm the man, I'm the man, I'm the man. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. And the more I listened to it, and the more I liked the song a lot, but the more I listened to it, I felt weird singing it. Um, Because I'm not that, and I'm not the man, and you can't tell everybody those things. but, um, But that's the culture that wants us to be self exalting. You see players pointing to the name on their jersey, you know, hands raised, asking for more applause. It's vain and it's prideful to exalt yourself. Proverbs says to let another boast about you, but not your own lips. Paul says, for the sake of Jesus and his accomplishment at the cross, we must boast only in the cross. So how do you boast in the cross? Well, are you happy that you won't face punishment for sin? That's because of the cross. Are you grateful to be adopted as a son or daughter and to be able to call God Abba Father and to be, uh, as Hebrew says, you can come into his presence at any moment. That's because of the cross. Are you grateful for forgiveness of sins? That every day you can wake up with a clean slate. That there is forgiveness in Christ. That if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just 
to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all righteousness, unrighteousness. Boast in the cross. Be grateful for the cross. Boasting in the cross implies that you place your confidence in Christ and in his work for your salvation. It means that you're not trusting in your religious acts. Those who boast in the cross simply say, this is all my pardon and my plea that Jesus died in my place. Boasting in the cross implies that God accepts you because of the work of Jesus and not by anything that you've done. That when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ that covers you and he doesn't see your sinfulness. That's because of the cross. Boasting in the cross, um, I mean, you can say because of the cross, the wrath of God will not be poured out on me. I thought about the cross a lot this week, and I read and listened to a couple of sermons uh, that described the cross. The um, local theater was playing uh, the Mel Gibson Passion of the Christ movie, and if you remember that movie, uh, being shocked as you uh, witness the brutality of the cross depicted there. Boasting in the cross acknowledges that, that, that I was supposed to be there. That's the punishment that I deserved. I was supposed to be on the cross. That's the punishment that the wrath of God demanded, the justice of God demanded punishment for sin. And God was pleased to pour out His wrath on Jesus on the cross. It is one of the worst forms of torturous, humiliating death that there could have been. It was not invented by the Romans. It was invented uh, by the Persians, and they found it to be a, a, a good deterrent for rebels and lawbreakers. That if you could hang them on a public highway, naked, for everyone to walk by, for the sun to pound down on them for a period of one to five days, for them to bleed and to suffocate in their own um, um, fluids from their lungs as their lungs would be punctured, uh, for them to experience the agony, for people to walk by and to spit on them, for them uh, to be pecked away by birds and by animals without any ability to fight them off. It was a humiliating way to die. And I started to think, who invented this horrible way to die? And ultimately, if you follow the history, you have to point back ultimately to divine wrath. That God developed this instrument of death for his own son because he loved us. Because he desired to pour out his wrath on his son instead of us. That's the penalty for sin. So when you boast in the cross... You acknowledge Jesus' substitute for you and that there was nothing you could do short of the cross to save yourself. Because of the cross, we have become a new creation. So we boast in the cross. We revel in it. We rejoice in it. Because, uh, boast only in the cross because every spiritual blessing you enjoy or will enjoy is due to the cross. Everything we enjoy as new creations is owing to the cross 
David Platt continues in this commentary, do you enjoy justification? Boast in the cross. Do you enjoy redemption? Boast in the cross. Do you enjoy adoption? Boast in the cross. Do you enjoy the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Boast in the cross. At this point, we have to make a decision. You can either stand on salvation by human achievement and boast in yourself and say, what a good person I am. God has to accept me. Or you have to acknowledge that salvation is by divine accomplishment. There is no other option. It is either Jesus and Jesus alone, or it is some mixture of human achievement uh, that makes us um, able to have bragging rights if we could achieve our own accomplishment, achievement for salvation. If it is human achievement, then by all means, praise the person who can accomplish their own salvation. But if it's by a divine accomplishment, then quit boasting in your flesh. Pick one or the other, but not both. Paul continues and he says that it is by the cross and boasting in the cross that the world has been crucified to me. And so I want you to hear this. He says, the world has been crucified to me. And this is a, a, a theme consistent in Galatians. And if you remember back in Galatians 2, uh, 20, I believe it is. He says, for I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul is saying that the world has been crucified to me. I'm no longer living for the world. I'm no longer living according to the system of the world and its attachments or its enticements. None of that is, it's no longer worth pursuing. It's as though he died at a point and that the rest of his life uh, now he lives differently to something else. This is what we do when we baptize somebody. If you remember a few weeks ago, we had a baptism and we said that you've been crucified with Christ and we are dead to our sin and we're raised up to walk in a new life. The new life is what Paul is describing. The world has been crucified to me. I no longer regard the world and its attachments as worth pursuing. He's saying that all of his appetites have changed. Verse 15, he says, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, meaning there's no reason to follow the law any longer. Those don't matter for anything anymore. Those rituals, they don't matter. The only thing that matters, the end of verse 15, is a new creation. A new creation. He's pointing to the fact that the gospel transforms us. You might have heard a sermon by Paul Washer, a shocking youth message, as it was later titled. But in that message, he describes going um, door to door in his town, and 90% of the people responded that they were Christians because they were good people, despite the fact that they had not experienced transformation, a life change. And so he used the illustration that he said, uh, suppose I tell you that I was on my way uh, to preach here this morning and, and on the way I got a flat tire and, um, and as I was changing the tire on the side of the road, a large truck sped by and hit me 
And it r- rolled me down the road, and, 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 and so I, I got picked myself up, finished changing my tire, and came here. He said, none of you would believe that because I don't look like I've been hit by a truck and rolled down the street. He says, you can't have an encounter with a truck and not be different. Something changes when you experience that sort of impact. And in, no, uh, in a similar way, you can't experience the salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ and not be different. It changes you fundamentally. And three key words that I want you to think about this morning in evaluating your own transformation. Three key words are affections, appetites, and attitudes. Your affections, your appetites, and your attitudes. Because once you've encountered the gospel of Jesus Christ, something changes fundamentally within you. If you've ever tried moral, you know, change somebody through sort of outward moral behavior, you bribe a kid, for example, I know that some of you would never do that, but if a kid's misbehaving, you say you're not going to get something, you know, if you don't behave, if you don't shape up, you can, you can watch that sort of outward uh, bribery as the kid wants to be themselves, right? They really want to do something else, but they know that they won't get ice cream if they act up or if they misbehave. And, and, and so we use this sort of behavior modification, but does it really change their heart? No, because as soon as they get what they want, they're back to normal, right? That sort of outward behavior modification does not change people. But the gospel of Jesus Christ changes us way down deep. And Ezekiel gets to this when he says, I will remove your heart of stone and I will give you a new heart. One that is responsive. See, we all need this new heart. And in the gospel, we get that new heart. And that births, uh, it plants a seed that grows. And as it grows, you get new heart, you get a new attitude, you get new appetites, and you get new affections. The things that you used to love, you just don't love anymore. Have you ever watched a movie uh, and then you got saved and then years later you were like, oh, I love that movie. And then you went back and you watched it and you, you couldn't believe that you ever liked that movie. I bought a movie and I won't tell you which one, but I bought it because when I was 16, I loved it. And I, and I, watched, I think it was Tombstone, but then I rewatched it again as a redeemed person. And, and all the things that drew me to it in the beginning were things that, that I, I couldn't stomach anymore. The, the, the language and the violence or whatever it was that was in it, 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 my appetites had changed. The things that I once loved, I no longer loved anymore. This is what Paul's getting at. All those outward rituals no longer matter, but a new creation. Transformation matters. Transformation matters. We are new creations. And we're not only just new creations for this world, but we are new creations that are being prepared and fitted to live in a new creation. It's not just a temporary change for this life only. Scripture says that the old earth, this earth, will pass away, and that a new heaven and a new earth will be created. And the the gospel transformation that's taking place in your life today is equipping you for your future reality. 2 Peter 3.13 But according to His promise, we are waiting for the new heaven and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. How will you walk in a new heaven and new earth where righteousness dwells if you are not becoming more and more righteous? Isaiah 65.17 
For behold, I will create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Isaiah 66, 22, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I shall make uh, shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name shall remain. Revelation 21.1, at the end of times, John is seeing this revelation and he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was, uh, the sea was no more. You are being transformed now, not just for this time, but transformed for the new creation. And so for that reason, we should not encourage our old appetites or our old attitudes or our old affections. The things that we used to love won't be fitting for the new creation. And so we must, as Paul said in Galatians 5, not so to our flesh, but so to the Spirit. Verse 16, he says, As for all who walk by this rule, let peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. You would have expected him to flip it and say the God of Israel. This is how you would normally hear it. But he says the Israel of God. We'll get to that in just a minute. But first he says, for all who walk by this rule. What rule? What standard is he talking about? Well, the word is canon, and it means a carpenter's rule or a measuring rod. It's often translated as standard. He's basically saying that the people in the Galatian churches who are going to live by this cross-centered, cross-boasting, Jesus-only standard of rule or rule of life will enjoy that peace and mercy of God in the family of faith. But those in the Galatian churches who reject Paul's appeal and who embrace this Jesus plus works model of righteousness, they will not experience the peace and mercy of God within the family of God. He says that because the Israel of God is the people of God. You would have expected him to say the God of Israel, not the other way around, but he phrased it that way because he's identifying this community of faith, those who live by the rule of gospel-centeredness, those who live by the rule of Jesus and Jesus alone will experience the community of faith and they will experience peace and mercy. I love the next verse, verse 17. Paul says, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Uh, don't you love that? Don't hassle me any longer, all right? I'm not going to be bothered anymore. Paul is saying, I have scars on my body that prove my devotion to Jesus. I heard this phrase before that knives and fire teach their own lessons. Have you ever heard that before? Um, I, I learned this um, a couple of ways. I've learned a lot of lessons the hard way. Um, but if you've ever reached into a dishwasher and somebody puts a knife, the upward facing, and it pokes you, or you reach into a sink and you you get poked with a knife, if that from that point forward, you, it changes something about the way you do things. You put the knife upside down, uh, the, po the, the business end down, right? If you've ever grabbed an iron uh, and found out it's hot, you won't grab an iron again. Um, there was one time where I worked on a golf course and I, I, I burned my feet severely and I, I, um, I had to go to a burn unit and it was a long, painful process that I've I've. I won't go into now, but, but needless to say, I, I don't uh, put myself in a situation 
to burn my feet or any part of my body again because it teaches a lesson. I have scars to prove uh, from lessons that I've learned. Maybe you've experienced uh, devastating loss or some sort of a setback emotionally because of a bad decision that you made or because of a bad relationship that you should have cut off. But when it leaves a mark on you, you think twice before repeating that behavior or putting yourself in that situation again. But you'll do it again and you'll endure any amount of pain or any amount of uh, repercussions if it's for the right reason. Paul repeatedly puts himself in a situation where he, in every city he would go to, he's, em, he's bracing himself for beatings and for being flogged and for being persecuted and for being thrown in jail. Think about it. Just in his three missionary journeys, every city that he would go to, everyone that he would walk into, he would get similar results. It was almost surprising when he didn't get beat down in a new city. Why did he continually put himself in a position to receive scars? Because the gospel is worth suffering for. Because the gospel message is worth suffering for. He's saying two things in this verse. I'm not going to be troubled by those who have no scars for the gospel and are out there for their own glory. I won't be bothered by them any longer. But he's also saying the scars of the gospel are worth every ounce of pain and suffering. If you look at that passage, when he says, I bear, the, uh, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus, the Greek word for mark is stigmata. And my commentary said this, the word stigmata was used for branding slaves. If you had a slave, you would put your brand on them and that would identify them as your property. So Paul was saying, I bear the brand of Jesus. He's saying that I am Christ's slave, that he was Christ's bondservant. As a Jew, he had the mark that the Judaizers were emphasizing, that is circumcision. But Paul says the real mark of suffering for Christ is this brand, this stigmata. Others want to boast in the ritual of circumcision, but Paul could say, let me show you the physical mark of my devotion. Look at my back. Look at the scars that I have borne for the gospel of Jesus. I've heard in the Chinese church that you're not really considered a pastor or a missionary or an evangelist or capable or worthy of holding any particular office of leadership in the church until you've been to prison. And if you haven't been to prison, then they have no way to know if you're a government spy or if you're um, just in it for selfish ambition. But the real seminary or the real test or the real proving ground for faithfulness uh, to Christ and to ministry in the church is imprisonment. And it's often not a year or less. It's often many years of being imprisoned. That's what it means to bear the mark of Christ, the scar of Christ, that your devotion can be pointed out on your body. Paul is essentially saying, I bear the scars of complete devotion to Jesus Christ, and I won't be troubled by those who have no scars of devotion, by those who want to avoid persecution by compromising the gospel. 
He finally closes here in verse 18 with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that a nice um, ending? May the grace of God be with your spirit. May the grace of God be with your spirit. He, grace is sprinkled throughout the entire letter. Galatians 1, 3 through 5. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse one, chapter 1, verse 6, he says, You've deserted the one who called you in, in grace, and you're turning to another gospel. In verse, chapter 1, verse 15, he said that this God called me and set me apart and called me by his grace. In chapter 2, verse 9, he said that Peter and the other apostles, when they perceived the grace of God in my life, they responded to me, grace, grace, it's all over this letter, that salvation is accomplished by grace, not by works. So, in conclusion, these last two verses, he gives the mark of discipleship. Scars on your body and grace in your spirit. Scars on the body and grace in the spirit. What a beautiful picture of glorying in the cross. So we asked in the beginning, why should we glory in the cross? Why do we love the cross? Why do we sing about the cross? Why are we experiencing this transformation accomplished at the cross? Because by Jesus' death on the cross, we live. We have life now and we have life eternally because of the cross. And because we know that we deserve to be on that cross and not Jesus. He traded places with us because he loves you and me. And that's why we glory in the cross. And that's why we don't boast in anything else according to our flesh. We boast only in the cross. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Father, we thank you for the work that was accomplished at the cross. And we pray that we can echo Paul's words that as for me, I will glory in the cross alone. By it, it, I have been crucified to the world and the world to me, that I may live only for Christ. May it be so of us. May it be true of us that, that we would bear the marks of discipleship, grace in our spirit, and scars that demonstrate our devotion to you. May we glory only in the cross and, and may we put to rest any other such boasting in our flesh or in our own accomplishments and especially that which we think would save us. Let us put all those works to death that we think will give us standing with you. Help us to forsake it that we may be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone not by anything that we think that we can accomplish. May that be true of us in Jesus' name. Amen.